0: Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we speak to James Pogue, an American journalist covering the parts of America that tend to exist beyond the country's liberal blue checkmark core. You're as likely to find his writing in left-adjacent publications such as Harper's and The New Yorker as you are in The American Conservative. And his 9,000-word blockbuster last spring for Vanity Fair titled Inside the New Right where Peter Thiel is placing his biggest bets should be considered canon for anyone thinking about the cultural stakes of post-Trump, post-lockdown US politics. Of course, it's already canon within certain discords in a certain corner of the podcast sphere. In the week leading up to the 2022 U.S. midterm elections, we spoke with James about the America he sees as emergent, its 18th century roots, the 20th century media, and the very real possibility of another American civil war. I'm Lil' Internet, joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest is James Pogue. Let's get into it. Ready.
1: Welcome, James Fogg, to the New Models podcast. Uh, Could you introduce yourself?
2: Thanks for having me. (laughs) How do I introduce myself? I am a journalist. I'm one of like 10 weird dinosaur people who exist in the realm of like making a living writing long print pieces for mainstream magazines. (laughs) I don't know. I'm somebody who's like on this kind of like weird exploration process of trying to navigate between mainstream systems of information delivery and like Whatever the weird netherworld of (laughs) dissident spaces or critics of liberalism or critics of technocracy and all this stuff, uh, which is basically just because I was interested in nature for most of my life. And so I was sort of like, wow, this system is like really feels insane and crazy. And that kind of like led me to get interested in like the weird like eco side of the new right and then to realize that there was this whole other ecosystem and then I wrote a famous piece for Vanity Fair that blew up my life and changed a bunch of stuff. <laughs> and basically, that had nothing to do with me. It had to do with a lot of people not understanding that these fears existed. So,
1: I mean, the way I like to think about your writing or the way it like registers to me is 99% of the mainstream media, there's not even a mainstream anymore. That's like, right. that's not even a useful term. But 99% of the, let's say, okay funded legacy media tends to tell one narrative about what's going on in the world and you're really interested in the quote quote free thinkers that exist outside of that one particular narrative and it takes you to a lot of really interesting places so I hope we're going to talk to you about the media itself and like what your journey has been in that space so I mean I guess a really simple question (laughs) simple it's not simple at all could you maybe just talk a little bit about what media felt like and looked like what you thought you were doing when you first signed up for this life and how that space has changed in your perception over the past. I'm not sure. Maybe we're about the same generation, like 15 years, 20 years or something. What is that for
0: you? I just want to say I, I Googled James's age and I found there was a page that just said, is James Polk gay? And, the, and it was just I one know, of these algorithmic like <laughs> celebrity bio pages. Oh, and it said, James yeah. is not gay and it thinks he's in his mid to late 30s. So that's uh, okay. as, as much uh, that's info as, as we
2: that's can share. True. I'm 35.
1: Okay, great. So more or less the same trajectory, but long enough to know what like late aughts media was yeah. or even have a fantasy of what early aughts centralized media was.
2: Yeah. I'm old enough to have come to media through the medium of print, yeah, like can. that. The, those two things didn't sound like a contradiction at the yep. time. And like, I mean, I'm going to say something that sounds like kind of grandiloquent, but I'm, let me don't take it as such yet. <laughs> but like, I consider myself basically a literary writer. Like, I don't consider myself like a, one of these like media beasts. Like, yep. and candidly, like if my trajectory like led me to being like a 200,000 Twitter follower, like New York Times hot take writer, like I'd probably kill myself. <laughs> I just don't, to me, like that wasn't the vision. Like, yeah. I actually came up reading Harper's, and that was my favorite magazine when I was 14. Oh, yeah, I love and it. And it's the magazine that kind of made me, like, you know, it's this complicated thing because it's like if I'd grown up a little bit richer, I'd be totally living the dream because, like, basically, I did the exact thing that a lot of people who wanted to do magazine lifestyle kind of stuff, who like really imbibed the grand old days of literary journalism as a form that describes the world. You know, the Didians and the Tom Wolfs and the yeah. Michael Herr. I have a Michael Herr book like sitting in front of me right now. I wanted to write Dispatches. Yeah. I wanted to write the White Album, that kind of stuff. And weirdly, like the place that you could do that in 2005 was Harper's. And so there are these guys who like, I don't know, I don't know how many people would even know who they are, but like Matt Power, Wells Tower, like great technicians of a form that was the American long form essay, but also like kind of with it guys, people who like novels, people who combine the idea of art and media and information delivery into one package. And that was dependent on a technology. That technology was the printed
0: magazine.
2: And so, (laughs) you know, by the time I got into it, I interned at Harper's after like I went to McGill. Dropped out of college, I rode freight trains. Like a weird, like, sub-story of American magazines is that a lot of people who are good at it did either go to war or write freight train. Yeah. Like, it, there's, like, two, there's like, there's like two <laughs> paths. It's like, you joined the Army or Specifically,
1: you like, road freight trains or went to war. Yeah. So you not, like, followed, like, the Rainbow Collective, but specifically, like, road freight Well... Maybe there's been diagrams, a lot crossover.
2: I mean, I've, I've ridden trains with Rainbow kids. Yeah. Actually, like, yeah, I almost went to Ocala. I almost went to the Rainbow Gathering. Oh, that's cool. Just because, like, train hoppers, rode people... No road people, you yeah, know, road yeah. people interact with road people, whether they're fucking criminals or rainbow people or whatever.
1: It's like both of those two trajectories are like you're living your life and you're making stories as you're living your life. It's sort of one of the same. Yeah. In sense.
2: And you inculcate because the other path to getting into magazines for a long time was that you fast checked. Mm-hmm. And the reason that that's true was partly economic and partly because you learned how to manipulate information in really, really specific, <laughs> important ways. So. Fact-checking teaches you to understand syntax and the truth value of a sentence in really, really complicated, precise...
1: That is such a great point. And, and I mean manipulation in a positive sense. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. I mean, exactly. like, the, yeah. the
2: specificity that it takes to be, like, a really good, detailed writer in the package of short form. I mean, short form in the sense of, like... It goes in a periodical and gets delivered to somebody's door. Like, you really, really have to be specific. You really, really have to know how to manipulate sentences on a really, really granular level to say the things you're trying to say. And fact-checking teaches that really well. And then the other thing about that is that basically, like, the path for a lot of people was you fact-checked at monthly magazines and then you had time off. They only need checkers two weeks a month, if that. And so the rest of the time, you're like out on couches, traveling the world. Like, you're going and getting stories. You're making your bones by doing that. And 26 bucks an hour, you know, in 2011, when I started at GQ, went pretty far. So the best research departments in the world are, or at least in North America, are the New Yorker, maybe Vanity Fair, and then GQ. I walked in there at twenty. 24 24 and everybody in that office then was a baller like every single person i worked with at that time is an absolute baller today and i don't necessarily agree with their politics or whatever but it was like luke mogelson the greatest war reporter in the world i mean i could go down the list but like there are people who work in israeli intelligence now people who work for like (laughs) tracing like gun flows to yemen like people are fucking crazy Right. And then I did that on and off for a long time. I was still riding freight trains. I would go, I would leave GQ and go ride freight trains. Amazing. Or like I moved to New Orleans for a while, moved to Arkansas for a while, and then I would come back and like make money. But by the end, that $26 an hour stayed 26 bucks an hour. Right. It never changed. Yeah. It's still that. Yeah. It's been that for, you know, 12 years. And it just doesn't go very far in New York. So now if you want to do that, you're either like, you have like some kind of mental illness or you're rich
1: like, <laughs> yeah I pulled this quote off your Twitter you pulled it from a book and it was like somebody I don't know when it was from but let's say it's from the 90s the Boston Globe for whom I worked as a stringer right. paid for a hefty chunk of the $40,000 or so it cost to cover the story and treated me with a consideration rarely accorded to a stringer yeah I mean like I couldn't even fathom I was like wait did I, did I read a decimal point wrong I'm sorry yeah. Like 4,000 if you're lucky today, right? So yeah, amazing. I mean, I when I talk, we talk about like the job of media, the economy around it just completely imploding. I mean, I do feel like our generation, that loss of concentration of a particular kind of thinker. I mean, like you say, you walk into the GQ editorial floor or whatever, and it's just this hotbed of all these insane minds who are able to sustain themselves mm-hmm. on this job. And like, you know, when we've lost centralized media I mean I'm not like you know singing a requiem or something for all this it's fine things change whatever but there's like a certain place like I always think of media as a place and like there was like a kind of citizen of that place and like that country has just been like wiped off the map it like doesn't exist I mean maybe in very small places like Vanity Fair is still killing it in a different kind of way I'm sure but you know they still run great pieces GQ still runs some really good pieces but it's just a very different economy so that like paints a picture of what that country was like, that country of like editorial departments up until around 2010, 11, 12, when social media obviously just became a totally different beast. So what's your, like, how do you spatialize what media is now? Where did that country go? Who lives there?
2: Well, so that book that we were referencing there is a book called Martyrs Day that was about the first Iraq war. And I think it's a really telling example of like, what we lost because i think a lot of people now especially if they're younger they come up in this world of like oh the mainstream media sucks it's all basically finding new ways to say the same thing and it's like very much a game of margins right like every atlantic piece now is like somebody says something like slightly different than the last atlantic piece and then it's like everybody tweets and gets mad and like freaks out and you could come from that situation and think that in the era where we had like you know, a lot of outlets, but basically like a few news channels, a few publishers, a few radio stations, like everybody concentrated in New York pumping out information in, you know, what people used to think of as kind of, or people talk about now as like an information monopoly. I kind of push back on that. Because mm. if you read these books, like if you read Dispatches by Michael Horner, if you read that book, Martyr's Day, their vision of the wars they were describing were incredibly heterodox. Even they were internally inconsistent. Like sometimes <laughs> they have like different, they, they argue with themselves, right? And you had a lot more space to do that, right? So The New Yorker is like the ultimate great example of this. So if you read The New Yorker from 1990, you have these like pieces by Joseph Brodsky they are like, what is going on? There's like he's like talking about a fish for five paragraphs, and then he's like the fish was like perestroika because of this, and you're like, <laughs> but it's a very complicated, weird set of worldviews that can get into a magazine. And even though those information delivery systems were more centralized than like Twitter, podcasts, etc., I would argue that you were still getting a range of. Uh, I hate this word. I don't mean it in the political sense, but heterodox views, right? And so, like, I quibble with people like Mark Andreessen, who argue that the the old world was like an information-poor environment, that we were information-deprived, and now we have the ability to see the light, right? I, I don't personally think that's true, and I think that the reason it's not true is because people read novels, and people read, like, complicated, long nonfiction in ways that they often don't today. Today... I think when you're speaking specifically of mainstream media, to some degree, even of dissident media, whatever <laughs> fuck you want to call it, what's the Barry Weiss quote? That the ultimate editor of the New York Times is Twitter. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Th- that's true. The ultimate editor of all stuff is Twitter. Yeah. And the ultimate editor of our political system is Twitter. That's right. And like, I'm very critical. I hate Twitter. I don't tweet a lot. I don't have that many followers for like somebody who's been doing what I've been doing as long as I have. But I'm very critical of people who are like, oh, yeah, Twitter's not real life. No, it is. It <laughs> is. Like Your your life is shaped by decisions that people who are deeply, deeply Twitter-brained are making. Yeah. So it, it, maybe it's not your real life, but it is shaping real life on a global scale in a really fucking crazy, not good way, in my opinion. That's actually why I like podcasts. Podcasts, I think, genuinely have a claim to being the closest reimagining of like what that old information delivery system was. And that's why I think it's cool. Like you listen to that six hour podcast I did and I was kind of embarrassed. I was kind of like, shit, like we should have done this at two hours. But then you really think about it. Like how long does it take to read a novella, an 80 page novella yeah. that expresses your worldview? About six hours. Yeah. And like that podcast expressed my worldview in maybe off the cuff ways, but in ways that were fundamentally not that different than a novella i contradicted myself i argued with myself i was kind of confused about some things i was exploring ideas it actually was that thing and the reason for that is because i knew that nobody was going to like grab one sentence i said and Screenshot it. Yeah. So it didn't fucking I mean,
1: you're like music to our ears and what you're saying. Um, because of course when we started new models, I mean I have a long back history of working in and around print media, and Julianne has like a long back history of working in the music industry. And of course both of those sectors kind of imploded. And we very much wanted to like, figure out could we somehow reconstitute that dynamic in some capacity? And there's this great I'm forgetting who said it first, but this idea that magazines don't produce content, they produce audiences because they, like, mm-hmm. focus, again, in big quotes, heterodox views, but they focus an audience around a certain spectrum of information, and that's, like, a really useful way of producing an audience, and producing, like, a habitus, also, yeah. like, you know, how to spend it is obviously a very important part of the FT, and it's just as information-rich as whatever their Ukraine coverage is, but, oh, my gosh, it just a, totally... But
0: there's a reversal.
1: Exactly, there's a reversal, and also um the idea... Audience so capture. Exactly, that's yeah. right. I was going to say exactly. Exactly. I, I don't
0: think Twitter is real life, but it may be captured real life.
1: Yeah, I it think captured real life. Maybe you concept, can talk about this though, concept because we heard yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really it first. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm very sensitive to the dangers of audience capture, and I noticed with my own words. Maybe say what like, that is too. So, okay. So, the easiest way to explain it is through my own lens, right? So, I started writing for the American Conservative. Basically, just because I was like, well, this is a place I can put pieces that it's just easier to like people who get really, really mad about stuff online, don't read this magazine. (laughs) Um, And so like, I, I can write stuff that like, it's just easier to do. It just comes out faster. You think less, you're less worried about it. Great. Okay. So leaving that aside. So I started writing for the American Conservative. And then a bunch of people started following me from the more right wing side of things. And then the new right piece that I did for Vanity Fair came out and all these people were like, damn, he's secretly based. This dude's (laughs) super based, like awesome. Like, and they've started following me and they're like, he's the one based guy in mainstream media and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, (sighs) I'm not striving for baseness over here. Right. But there's a part of me that just fits that role in certain ways. And so now like all the people who like communicate with me on Twitter, all the people who are like what you might call my biggest fans are like either this weird group of people who i consider my tribe which is like weird dirtbag post-leftist greeny guys who drive toyota trucks and have guns and (sighs) you know like old books and stuff uh or it's like super right-wing people honestly and like those are the people who are on twitter so when i tweet stuff like everything that gets retweeted is by literally like fucking tim pool sometimes and you're like dang Because like at that point, like all these people are like, yeah, this guy's fighting the fight. He's within the media thing, but he's super based. And it's like, no, you just saw one thing you agreed with. And then you think that I'm that guy. But then I get pulled over there because now if I see something that right wing guys are doing and I want to call it out and I'm like, no, no, I don't like this. No, no, I don't like this. All those people are going to get mad. And so I get dragged in certain ways and directions that I don't particularly find comfortable, which is why I don't tweet off because I'm not down with that. Yeah. And it happens to a lot of people. It happened, you know, the classic example is Glenn Greenwald, whom I like. Yeah. And I'm I'm not about to say Glenn Greenwald, but to suggest that he has not been audience captured is crazy. And that's not to say Glenn Greenwald suddenly started saying things he wouldn't have said before. I'm not suggesting that. But what he doesn't say is just as loud. Right. And so, like, he's not out there criticizing Tucker when Tucker's like, You know, and I will, like, there's certain things that Tucker brings up that are important. Tucker also, like, is super, super into really bad stuff about, like, fossil fuel companies and stuff that I don't agree with. Um, And that, frankly, like, I think undermines his entire, quote unquote, anti-globalist project. And, like, there's no way Glenn Greenwald agrees with him about that stuff. But he's not calling it out. And that to me is like a super classic example of audience capture. Yeah. It's more about what you don't say and who you don't criticize and who you're secretly signaling, like which team you're on, than it is about what you actually do say. And I think that can be difficult for people who aren't in it and aren't experiencing it to actually notice.
1: And that's interesting because we're working on this talk about criticism today and we were like, all right, well, we can't really talk about criticism till we diagram the media machine. And in the art sector, which this is adjacent to, there's this idea that you just need to basically be critical of something on the right and then you're a good critic. Like criticism means one thing, Mm -hmm. like criticizing, like fascism creep. So where would the critical position be? I wonder, I mean, you've done a pretty skilled job of evading audience capture. Obviously the legacy media, journalism has been like way defunded, the same economic structures aren't there anymore. But then what tools do you have as a journalist or a critic that are most effective to stake a position in the public sphere? I mean, maybe staking a position is more just like identifying with a certain community and just like going off the grid and just spending time with them. But like, how do you understand where there's power? What what tools do you think are most
2: effective? <laughs> So (laughs) there's a lot, lots to unpack there. Starting with the the sides bit of it, like how you stake a position. I think increasingly the shaping what you might think of as as the tectonic global end of day struggle that organizes our politics today. Until you know the '90s was left right. I think in retrospect, we're going to go back and look at like this weird period at the end of history where. The left-right divide stopped really explaining the world, but we hadn't figured out what was coming next. And I think now we're coming closer to an answer to that, which is going to be that it's going to be sort of like a conflict between people who have a, quote-unquote, globalist mindset and a, quote-unquote, localist mindset. Mm. And you can see that now, you know, in like Georgia Maloney, Marine Le Pen, like, you know, these people who are like sort of like really into like both local agriculture, criticizing global finance, like using identity, often straight-up white identity, as a sort of pushback against homogenizing forces of globalism and stuff. I think Tucker, being probably the most significant and powerful media figure in America today, has made that very explicit on his show, that it's like a sort of nationalist position against a globalist enemy. And then, you know, a lot of people on the other side of things, and also very powerful media figures, are like, if you criticize anything from, you know, mass legal immigration to global trade deals and stuff like that. Like, that's somehow fascism and stuff. And what they're really talking about is, like, you're running against, like, the force of progress of history that is leading us towards a one, like, seamless global system. And that's kind of, like, the big two shaping forces that are going to fight it out right now.
1: That makes sense. So globalist, localist. Yeah. yeah.
2: And I don't suggest that, like, one of them is going to win, right? Like, the point of the whole left-right thing was, like, neither could win, right? They were two balancing forces. But so within that, like... (sighs) to unpack the narrative thing, like very, very quickly, I'm not a great narrative writer. And that's part of it. It's just like, I just don't like it. Like the whole culture of like narrative, long form, like magazine, tell story, story is the ultimate thing. Everything about story like that to me. And I, I don't know if you've read these pieces, but I've like criticized to, to the detriment of my own career, like really, really heavily because like, I think that narrative ended up working out to serve the interests of power of very, very powerful people, because what you did was elevate story as a cause instead of like, like you described the world without expressing a worldview and without criticizing the world. And a lot of that had to do with the capture of journalism by Hollywood, because Hollywood uh-huh. wasn't looking for, like, really, really complicated things that would mess up their worldview and, like, the American system. And so they, when they were started optioning stuff, and that's how a lot of journalists make their money now, when they started optioning stuff, they were looking for stuff that was really great narrative, but wasn't necessarily dangerous or complicated or, like, fucking with their thing right like the
1: anna delvey story or like the oj story yes. or these kinds of things yeah
2: yeah, that stuff is great right and so like there's a whole just awful era of magazine writing that developed basically right as i was coming up that was all this shit that was just people who might have once grown into great writers who were just basically using an information delivery technology that we call capital and narrative yeah and again the new yorker is a great example um the new yorker is the best done magazine in the world. Like, there's no question of that, but part of why it's the best, like simply executed, like on the level of execution, the reason that they don't fucking miss is because they have a delivery system. That is a technology that was developed over time. And people did this. I and mean, Bill Losek is a, technician of narrative. He runs the New York Times Magazine now. These are people who figured out how to elevate story in ways that were predictable, that smoothed out bad writers, but also that smoothed out good writers. And uh-huh. so, you know, the joke, everybody always says like, privately, when you write for the New Yorker, they put a condom on you. Um, and that's true.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>, it's true. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know? And so I- I'm not a great narrative writer. Maybe that's just because like, I'm not that good at it. I tend to think that I'm also just like not that good at it because I actually have philosophical objections to the prioritization of narrative and story as a technique for delivering information what i do is closer again to that 70s thing of like didion the way i stay safe is by being very self-revealing and so i don't know if i'm like friends with jd vance but like i have conversations with him that are not for work you know what I mean? Like, I, I've, like, been to his house and, like, had drinks and stuff.
1: Yeah, both from Ohio, share some background. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. I mean, he, li- yeah, he lives in the house that I, like, went to party at, like, all the time when I was oh in high God. school. The thing about that, though, is that, like, I just say that. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't say it, if you don't say it, if you hide it, then there's this thing of, like, what's his fucking agenda, right? And I narrativize my own life. I narrativize my own process of trying to come to terms with the things that are reshaping the world. And that's what keeps me safe. So there's a lot of I in my work, which is very, very hard to do in magazines today because of those narrative technologies. They pulled the I, the vision, the authorial vision, they pulled all that stuff out
1: unless you're a particular subjectivity that they want to foreground and then they're very happy to give you a lowercase i and 10,000, you know, fonts. Yes, that's
2: true. The kind of like identitarian personal essay thing like it's a new genre. One
1: exception to that. But yes, otherwise, totally.
2: Yes. But that, that even that is like, There's like a pre-existing worldview and then you fit your eye into that pre-existing worldview. Even that is basically a smoothing technology. And so like that goes back to what I was talking about earlier with the New Yorker, where it's like before there was authorial vision. Now there's a magazine vision. Mm. It's very different. Mm. So the thing that I do that is like a dangerous fucking game. And like, (laughs) I don't know if you guys know baseball, but like there's a thing in baseball now where like it used to be like a good baseball player, like got a lot of hits but they were like singles and doubles. And now like a good baseball player either strikes out or hits a home run.
0: It's refinement culture. Yeah. Same with basketball, right? It's all threes and dunks now. Like there's no jump shots.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: They just, Occam's razor, everything. The most efficient and effective thing just gets repeated over and over.
2: Well, okay. But actually I was using that metaphor in a slightly different sense, Mm. which is that when you try to play the game that I'm playing, it either works really, really well, or it doesn't work at all. And so I have like a lot of big swings and a lot of big misses and it's a hard way to live. But the thing that I was going to say going back to the 70s is like Joan Didion, I think it's Joan Didion, has a line that like all great journalism involves selling someone out. Like every great magazine piece that you ever read, there's one person who gets betrayed in it, at least often many people. And sometimes it's difficult to see that betrayal. But like, you're always getting stuff that other people don't know, and that other people generally have an interest in hiding, whether that's their personal motivations, or like, literal just actual information that people want to know that they don't know and like my personal rule is that like i tend to sell my own self out Mm. in my pieces like i find (laughs) a way to sell and expose my own self and that is actually really safe space to operate in right now because like nobody's gonna like dig around and look for like all the bad stuff that i've done in my life or like that i said or like which evil political team i might be on because it's just right there on the page
1: right It's an interesting self-defense mechanism. Yeah. You don't have to dig through my Twitter. I'll tell you everything right here. Yeah.
2: I do that. Yeah. And I hope that it keeps working I um, mean, <laughs> to the extent that it does work. I'm on deadline for a Vanity Fair piece right now that's like, honestly, I don't know if it will work.
1: Is this your survivalist piece where you were like in Jackson Hole and in Bozeman, but also like in yes. whatever wildernesses are adjacent?
2: Yes. And so it's a very weird thing because it like right now it starts with me hanging out with a Rockefeller who left the Trump administration and moved to Wyoming to start a farm Amazing. and there's already like a question of like, why is she talking to me? Cause she's not going to talk to anybody else. And then I go to the premiere of the Alex Jones film in Austin, which I didn't actually go to as a reporter. I went there cause I was curious and I had friends going. And it was like, real, it was not safe space for mainstream journalists to be at. Like, you know, it was like Mike turn of was there. <laughs> Ali Alexander, the guy, like the guy behind Stop the Steal, like, you, you know, like, I, I'm writing in part in this Vanity Fair piece about Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney is investigating January 6th. January 6th happened because of Ali Alexander. And like, I'm like going up to like you're report it. on this stuff. And I just been like at a house party with Ali Alexander. And you're like, so at first I was like, shit, like, this is a really difficult thing I'm going to get in trouble. Like, there's no way I can write this piece. And then I was like, oh, wait, I actually have to just include the Alex Jones stuff in it. I have to go back and, like, add that to it. So it becomes this piece about, like, the breakdown of America and, like, why... Why it feels, quote, like, America is out of control. And So I, like, start the piece off with a poll that just came out from The Economist. There's, like, 80% of Americans feel like the country is out of control. Which is, like, at that point, like, it genuinely is out of control. Like if, if that many people believe that it's out of control, then actually something has really, really gone crazy. <laughs> and so like it becomes an investigation of what happens next and why everybody's fleeing to the Northern Rockies. And then I go to Urbit in Miami. <laughs> um oh, <huh>. and <laughs> it turns out that all these people who are like behind like the DAOs and like weird crypto plans to like make prepper spaces and like exit from society, like were at Urbit in Miami. So it's become this piece that's like. New right techie people, preppers mixed in with like Liz Cheney and like Wyoming politics. And the only thread that you can use to bring those together is my own exploration of like why this is all going crazy. And I have to find like a lens that makes it like my own personal investigation. Otherwise, there's no thread.
1: We were speaking with our friends, Annika Kuhlman and Christopher and Thomas, also in this space of, you know, thinking about his new Elam project, now his EarthNet project. And Annika is, I hope I can say this, but uh, her brother is doing his PhD in, I think, like geopolitics in China or something related to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this really interesting, very simple framing of how America and China differ, whereas China can deal with lots of incoherency and contradiction outside of its borders. Within its borders, everything has to be coherent. It has to all follow a common narrative. And if you're not part of that narrative, then you don't exist or you're forced to join it. Whereas America can't deal with any kind of incoherency externally. It has to have full dominance over the world order. It has to always know its place in the hierarchy and keep everyone else in check. But internally, it's developed this form where it can have complete chaos and incoherency inside and even prosper on a like meta structural level because of it. Mm -hmm. This idea that like because of its legacy maybe with entertainment and maybe its legacy for better or worse with storytelling even sometimes in this total hundredocracy mids zone it can completely somehow, it has so far and maybe this is where my question is it has so far been able to literally capitalize on contradiction and you know this like free thinking narrative is part of its total constitution even like on an economic level do you think though that we are actually hitting a breaking point where that's no longer true where there cannot be this enclosure anymore of the chaos and what suggests that that's the case if so
2: Ooh, um yeah i mean we're definitely hitting a breaking point i think With regard to the China thing versus America, like most large imperial minded societies, like, have the idea that their way of life is the best thing, and like everybody else who doesn't do their thing is like somehow weird and wrong. That's like an organizing thing of a lot of large societies. The thing that's different, maybe, about America than other places is that we also have this like Puritan, like, substrata that presupposes that everyone should live like us. Like, not only are we the best at living, but also like everybody who doesn't do what we do will eventually get converted to our form. Uh And that is actually turning out to be incompatible. This is kind of like the the breakdown in like what American conservatism actually can do. Because at a certain point, like what we did was we exported our form of empire and like, more importantly, like our vision of like, liberal society throughout the world, such that it's like, kind of the organizing principle of the whole world now like in a lot of ways like liberal democracy all this stuff right but like in the process we massively indebted the country we overtaxed our military we overtaxed like our literal system like our system we ran our system so fucking hot that we lost the country that we thought we were exporting in the first place and that's the the source of the derangement a lot and the, the split between like the new right and the more like neoliberal globalist Neoconservative right, in the sense that, like, the neocons are like, hey, yeah, yeah, we were doing great. We were doing great. We were exporting democracy. We we're making these transnational structures that were exporting our way of life. That was awesome. And the new right is like, yeah, but in the process, everything that we had that was good about this country, like, evaporated. And we lost our core. The
1: mystery is gone, as you say.
2: Yeah, I think that problem is irreconcilable. I mean, it's like the problem with any kind of like world eating ideology from Islam to communism to the United States. It's like you export it such rapidity and often with great success. And you think, oh, fuck, yeah, we're almost there. We're almost there. The millennium is coming. And then it doesn't. And then you're <laughs> like, well, we've lost our vision. Like, I mean, I have an er take on like all of American history that we can go into, but it's pretty simple, right? Is like we needed to export, export, export to conquer, conquer, conquer to like keep pushing the boundaries farther and farther out. And after we ran out of Frontier, we started doing that via markets and other things, via culture, yeah. etc. And now even that's breaking down like the internal security of this system is starting to collapse because we exported it so so quickly yeah. and i think the easiest way to look at it is actually industrialization and deindustrialization of the midwest it's like we basically like mortgaged the lives of a third of the country yeah. for the sake of exporting a system that would keep us on top and a lot of people got really mad about that. And they, they actually were like, well, fuck it, whatever. We'll take 1.7% economic growth like France has if we can cut, stop doing this stuff. We don't need to grow at 3.2%. Mm-hmm. And we're really mad because we had it in the way of life that actually kind of worked. And most people who administer this system at the very highest levels don't agree with that take. Yeah. They think the system will fall apart if we stop growing at 3.2%. Yeah. Um, and it's basically an irreconcilable problem.
1: I think you posted there's been like a 70% drop in wildlife since the 1970s or something. I forget That's exactly. A right.
0: Famous statistic. I think that there's, yeah, 70% of the animals are gone yeah.
1: right that's insane I mean so right you know this idea of progress obviously has to be like heavily reconsidered and <laughs> you know the obvious ending of the American dream with our generation especially those of us who chose to you know my family is actually from Ohio as well and they were like you know Not working really. yeah like Cleveland area like working class but they led the American dream and I'm supposed to be the like you know progeny that goes into the culture sector and makes it but it happens you know that the culture sector falls apart during our generation and so do all the other markets of progress that upheld that part of the industry. So yeah, maybe that myth of progress does come to an end at this point because the negative impacts of that progress dream are overshadowing whatever mythology they can continue to spin.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean I think the animals thing is a great example because it's like like how do you measure progress, right? Yeah. How do you measure actually what has happened and decide whether it's good? If you're looking at it from the perspective of an elephant, then this has been a massive fucking disaster <laughs> right. right and this is just empirically true the reason we lost 70% of all wild animals on this planet was because we ran this system really fucking hot yeah and people made conscious decisions to do that and the narrative of progress it's less pernicious to say that like humanity's a story of getting better that stuff that stuff i don't like and I hope that we smash the myth of progress, but it's maybe not as bad as the as the corollary to that stuff, which is that all of these processes were inevitable, right? Yeah. So that like whatever happened with we lost all the biodiversity, like well it didn't really matter because we had to learn to develop, and now we'll figure out some new solution or blah blah blah. And like if you unpack that and you unpack the illogicality of like just because something happened in a chronological fashion does not mean that it was a positive development, right? You start to get into the territory of oh, we might be heading towards
0: disaster. Like the audience capture of certain journalists—is it just a data capture? Yeah. The The numbers by which we're measuring our success, it's our like progress, has become totally. capture. <laughs> well, it's, no, but I'm thinking just measuring off of the percentage of growth or GDP yeah. or mm. something like this, while the normal people, nothing has like wages haven't been rising, right. Right? right? Like the data that I guess is prioritized is the, the wrong, b- data. wrong data to be the metrics yes.
1: of- And correlate that to democracy. <laughs>
2: well, so uh, there's an easy way to show that, right? And that's part of why I like the rural West right now as a lens for what's going on in America, because you have this rapid, rapid influx of very rich people and of private equity and quote unquote development. Now, if you own a home in Bozeman right now, if you are a holder of capital, in big sky montana jackson wyoming those markers work for you like the stock market expanding makes you richer the housing market getting hot makes your wallet fatter for most people and certainly most people of our generation Economic development and economic growth, like that 3.2% number that like everybody's like trying to fucking hit all the time, that is actively hurting you.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> um, You're actively getting poorer in relation to the small set of people who hold capital. And so like the metrics that we use and so everybody says, well, like, hey, you know, on the one hand. It sucks that you guys can't afford homes anymore and that it feels like Bozeman's getting crazy. But on the other hand, this is inevitable and this is progress because the markers we use to measure progress are those growth numbers. And that's just going to have to change. And on a more sort of like, quote unquote, spiritual level, it's just an absolute simple provable fact that most people in the United States right now are unhappy, uh-huh. like particularly most people who don't own capital. It's a really unhappy, mentally ill fucked up, crazy feeling country right now. And there are a lot of statistics that can show that. I don't see why you would need them. You can just walk (laughs) around and experience it. A lot
1: of us are in Europe, so it's helpful to hear.
2: (laughs) Right. And like that gets to another thing of like progress, right? Because like we have a huge problem in All developed societies where we measure progress by the provision of material goods. And like, there's a lot of material goods around right now. Like, it's really, really easy to keep yourself alive if you don't kill yourself, do drugs, like do all this, the quote unquote deaths of despair that we have in the United States now, which particularly affect men. But one of the things that is becoming quite apparent to people, even in the high places of power, is that like the provision of material goods, the provision of TV and entertainment and all this stuff has like sapped some kind of will to live amongst people. Mm-hmm. And that like all of this stuff that we use to measure progress and development has actually like hurt their psyches in ways that leave them feeling really disempowered, useless, alone and unhappy. And we don't have the numbers. Mm-hmm. We don't have the data collection systems to try to capture what's going wrong. And so what we have is just like fucking mass shootings and like a declining life expectancy based largely on people doing bad shit to themselves. Based on people like killing themselves, like living really unhealthy lives, doing drugs as a way of managing their feelings of emptiness and unhappiness that have come with living in modern society. And like, if it keeps going in this way, and we keep using those same markers, like, yeah, the society, it's not even gonna rip itself apart in the terms of like civil war. It's just everybody's gonna die at 62, like really unhappy, alone, <laughs> like childless. yeah, And like broken in certain ways. And and that's increasingly what we're seeing in the United States right now. And I think I'm a bit of a hippie with this stuff, but like I think it ties in with the massive development sort of quote unquote ecocide or whatever, like the destruction of nature, the increasing divorce that we have from our, like our physical and natural realities. And technocratic liberalism just doesn't really have good answers for that stuff. It's like, oh, we have a pandemic sweeping the world. Like, well, we're going to get Pfizer to, like, develop a shot and then it'll all go away and, like, everything will go back to normal. And, like, anybody who says, and I'm not, I got one shot. I got one shot. I'm not an (laughs) anti-vaxxer. But, like... You know, there is a degree to which living really healthy lives like actually Uh did. It turns out this is this is in the data. I'm not trying let's not get this like banned from YouTube (laughs) or something. But like healthier people had better outcomes, right? Yes. And if you said that, you got in a lot of trouble. You got in so much trouble because it ran against everything that these people believe. It ran against the entire worldview, which is like, no, let the experts develop a technology that will solve things. That's how we do this Mm -hmm. stuff. And I just think yeah. that worldview doesn't answer the needs and desires that humans actually have.
0: Yeah, the scientism, especially coming from the left over the, I mean, I, I'm vaccinated and I'm not a conspiracist about the vaccines, but believe science yeah. with hand mm-hmm. claps, like, just drove me fucking crazy. Because, yeah. like, that's... Yeah. that sort of blind belief does not make any nutritional
1: guidelines over the past 30 years had been like a fucking abomination in the united states absolutely like it's a great example right like it's absolutely crazy yeah it's crazy
2: and that's why i mean that's i mean this is this other thing that is like one of the weirdest things that has ever happened on the internet from my perspective but like the two-year process by which local food organic food health and all that stuff like flipped from having a left wing valence to having a right wing Mm -hmm. valence is like it's just one of the wildest things but it's very very easy to understand because like right wing people are like yeah these experts suck and these experts get to stuff wrong and all of a sudden the left is like no no experts and technocrats like are the people we're supposed to be listening to and indeed mm. in many cases with the left like they are us right so it was like you're defending your turf by defending scientism and that i think is a horrible position for the left to be in
0: i mean i always the way i always frame this is that the right always kind of questions the right thing, but the problem is they tend to find an alternative truth that they then <laughs> believe instead of being comfortable with a state of skepticism and questioning and unknowing. Right.
1: And I think that's really... need coherency. Right. I
0: think it's really that urge or necessity to find some narrative to uphold is the truth is where I get lost on things. And then, you know, it's generally it feels like the right tends to settle on these truths that I find more absurd or more dangerous. I mean, I also think about the new journalism or the kind of long form journalism that was in the the 90s or that I remember. And it was yeah. always settled on a mess, you know? Like right. that was okay to not pre- be re- present a resolution or to present a clear moral narrative that ties itself up neatly. Yeah. And I feel like that's very much missing right now.
1: I mean, outside of America, like right and left also have like a different, a slightly different well, meaning. And now that we've been out of the States for so long, it is actually interesting to hear like you reinforcing right and left so much, especially because I tried to diagram like through your various pieces, like these two how do you call them like I guess they're like neurotypes kind of like bugman versus back to the lander <laughs> and like it's not a right or left mm-hmm. i have it nominally written as liberal center versus new right but it's true like when it comes to all of this like believe the experts it's like well Bugman tells us to believe the experts, but man on farm who like actually takes care of his animals and grows his vegetables says that doesn't work. Who am I going to believe? The person who has material truth. Do you have any better term that you're using rather than just right or left or are right and left well, still effective said for you?
0: Lo- local and
2: global. Local and global is better... like, yeah, can, yeah.
1: can we use that? Does that still make sense? Like local versus global? Or?
2: I think globalist is the correct one. Yeah. Like that conversation about globalist being like an inherently like anti-Semitic trope, I think is incorrect just yeah. based on the fact that for a very long time, globalist was something that was used by the liberal center, like happily, right? I think that term is the right one. And I think it sort of captures what the quote unquote enemy for a lot of the bug man hating types is. I'm less convinced that localist is the right one, because I think there are localists who are not right wing, and there are nationalists who are not Avowedly, really like localist in any appreciable yes. sense. They're just it's just they're closer to being localist than the globalists are, right? So it kind of like fits in. There's a guy I don't know if he's famous or not. I read a Substack. Is a guy named Josh Centers who has a Substack. He's like a prepper. I'm not sure where he is, and he frames this not as localist versus globalist, but as modernity versus tradition, in the sense that like you know the Ukraine war, the nature of Russian totalitarian Putinite worldview that's emerging is a like an explicitly traditionalist. And like in his speeches, reading between the lines, like he's very explicit. Like his advisors will use the phrase Globo Homo. Like we are pushing back against the global Homo. We are fighting for a traditional like Russian way of life. Like this is in all of their messaging. And it's something that actually I think a lot of the liberal center actually wants to avoid having to talk about because they don't like this. Framework. To them, it's like it's yeah. good versus evil. It's the West versus the not West. You know, it's, it's liberalism versus fascism, right? That stuff like all makes sense. This kind of like new like rebellion against the very concept of progress is very, very scary for a lot of them to legitimize. They don't want to legitimize that. They don't want to believe that there could possibly be a rebellion against the story of progress. They don't want to believe that the end of history is over. And unfortunately, it is. I mean, unfortunately for them, Uh, probably fortunately for many people, like fortunately for the history of the world, it's good that the end of history is ending. But it's like, I would, of course, prefer that it didn't involve mass death in Ukraine. So like, I don't know. I'm very, very conflicted about this stuff. But like, I think looking at it, that sort of matrix, localist, globalist, modernity tradition. Yeah. Yeah kind of captures like what these real dividing lines are now and it's funny that you call me out for talking about left right stuff because like i think it's so much a part of the media ecosystem like what is left what is right like who's left who's right that like Even though I actually think those frames are basically useless at this point, I seem to fall into that kind of discussion anyway.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it's interesting to me. It's more just like those terms like mean specific things in Europe. But it's true. I mean, you're right. Like in America, there's still a certain cast of characters that are on Team Right and a cast of characters that get like coded as, you know, team left. And so you you can use them as shorthand effectively. And it's totally not like, not even like a calling out. Like, I think it makes sense. I was just curious, like, is there already a terminology that you think is more useful, but maybe in the channels where... I haven't answered that.
2: And it's kind of a spit take, but I say this to right-wing guys all the time. Don't be right wing you want to push back against this whole thing, you're not a right winger. You don't have to be, you don't have to do all this shit. You don't have to look yeah. at the, like, the grand sweep of Western Christendom and all that stuff. We have an organic American political division that is different mm. than this like, false imported European left-right division, which you know is like, it's like a French import that post-states aren't the founding of our republic. And that yeah. division is between Hamiltonians and Jeffersonians. It's, you know, yeah. it's between federalists and Republicans. It goes back to the founding, founding tendencies of this country. Are we like a farmer democracy with a small government? And like, the small d democracy of like people who get together in their communities and live these kind of like localist landed lives? Or are we like a world straddling commercial empire? Yeah. And that's that's the fundamental original American political division. And it already like it's the one that still shapes us. We have to transmogrify it into these weird left-right divisions. Right. But even that is not even that is like a super, super recent import. It's a Cold War legacy. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, the Cold War legacy essentially is what created the kind of lockstep homogenous party groupings along the lines of right-left Republican-Democrat. Before that. The parties were heterodox groupings with different ideological strands. So I tend to think that we're probably going to get back to that, right? So like now, and this is a big assumption, but assuming that the project of like the Blake Masters and the JD Vances and blah, blah, blah were to be successful, you're going to see a Republican Party that is closer towards being like a Jefferson-Jackson party Hmm. and a Democratic party that's closer to being a Hamilton party.
1: Could you, like, unpack that?
2: Yeah, I know. Now I'm about to fuck this up. No,
1: it's great. I love it. I love it. It's (laughs) cool to have these categories.
2: So, like, at the beginning of the Republic, right, there's basically a coup. So you had this genuinely, genuinely populist ferment in the United States, centered around the idea of a capital L liberty. And everybody can talk about the kind of ironies of that. But what liberty meant in the original American sense was not you get to vote for a senator. It meant that you were like free to form your own life in certain ways and that you didn't really care whether it was a king or a parliament above you because you were a smallholder. You had control over your destiny. I mean, that actually goes back to Britain. So, like, British people were always talking about how much liberty they had, which is funny to the American mind because you're like, no, nah, you had a king. Like, you didn't have any power at all. But like it was like the British artisan like always believed he had Capital L liberty, right? And you had this big time populist ferment here where like people after the revolution, like people would not work as servants. It's really fascinating. But people were like, that's undemocratic, it's unrepublican. We don't do stuff like that. And we have all this land, so you can go out and find your capital L liberty like doing that stuff. And you had a tendency like in the political structures of this nation as it was forming, where you had a force of reaction emerging amongst the merchant class, who basically reasserted a lot of political power. And, you know, Curtis Yarvin is the one, he's big dog on this, because he thinks it's really good. And I don't. But Hamilton orchestrated a coup that put him in charge of an effective monarchy in the United States in all but name. Anybody who's seen Hamilton, right? It's like, okay, our vision of America is this internationalist mercantile empire. You know, he made the Bank of America, all this stuff, right? And so there was this already kind of this, like, forming division between the financiers and the merchants and the kind of like populist, small farmer, agrarian vision of the United States. And that played out in really, really bitter partisan battles, right? So like all these letters are like, they're like a classic American formulation of like having met a guy is like, he was really nice, although a Republican, like, and it's (laughs) like we're getting back to that. (laughs) But that kind of partisan division and sort of politically sectarian hatred was a initial marker of the republic and it was formed around mm. the same stuff by over now
1: yeah, that is super interesting. I mean, I grew up loving George Washington as like a mythic figure for whatever reason and loved the fact that he was this small farmer, quote, quote, and that was really his identity. And he hated the idea of even being the first president. It was like something he felt was foisted onto him, if I understand that correctly. Yeah. But that, mean, is that a hagiography?
2: <laughs> well, so this is, I mean, the Yarvin take is basically that George Washington was a puppet of Hamilton, of like uh, the monarchy that, that Hamilton created. Yeah,
1: because uh, he was bitter. I can't I really go into all president.
2: that. But there were, bitter, bitter, raging, crazy fights in the early American Republic about, like, whether or not George Washington, when he's inaugurated, rides in on horses that are white, right? Because they like, it's like, oh, maybe he's like a fucking monarch now. And like, whether the bridles would be gilded with silver, which they were. And that was like a scandal. That was, it was, wow. it was really like, it goes to the heart of a lot of these kind of conversations about, like, aristocracy and. Sure. So anyway, we could go into all that. But,
1: Fascinating.
0: You know, now our so
2: aristocrats are technocrats, so we can, we can it's an easy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I wanted to it's kind of coming back to Twitter, but more broadly, the technocrats vision, the Musk or Andreessen vision for the future of America. I mean, I mean, I noticed in your 2020 piece about Wisconsin. Mm. You mentioned in that piece that people make an error of seeing American politics as driven by rage. And I think at that time you said that the bubble of Twitter does not reflect the real motivations or ideas of your average American. I guess first, did your opinion on that change since you wrote that essay and 2020? I mean, how much did you change your weighting of how important digital discourse is in American life?
2: Well, I think you have to separate the actions of people at high levels of media and politics. Media and politics are the same thing, too. You have to separate the policy prescriptions that come out of Twitter from like the organic motivations of somebody who's not on Twitter, who's just like, I don't like the way this world is going. The short answer is I think the people I was describing in that piece. Who are generally not on Twitter are like living in a world that maybe like Twitter brained people are creating, but like remain separate and often confused about why all this shit has to be going crazy in the way that it is. I also think that I probably would revise that now. I think that. The vast majority of Americans, or at least vast numbers of Americans, have become much more media branded in recent years, mm. and like there is just a thing of really normy people living their lives through basically proxy battles that take place on cable news and Twitter mm. in the same way that like you know a guy in suburban Detroit like lives with everything in his life organized around who the lions are playing next week. A lot of people live through like This guy went on Tucker and said this dumb thing. And like, (sighs) now I'm going to do this. And like, I hate these people. Like, so I think people just like during the pandemic, they were locked inside. There were these raging fights about crazy stuff. And like, they just got caught up in it in a way that they weren't before. Mm -hmm. I was actually going to transition to like Andreessen because like Andreessen is quite open, quite open about the way that exposure to different trends of thought on Twitter have changed his mind. And like got him to read stuff he wouldn't have read and to think about media and its sway over our lives in ways that I think changed very rapidly. And I don't think that's unique to Andreessen. I think that's something that a lot of people experienced.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have this idea of delusion of metaverse, which COVID and the lockdown was Mm -hmm. just long enough. The technocratic elite got this idea that the majority of America would be extremely online forever. Mm-hmm. I think as we're seeing by Meta's valuation and the lack of interest in the capital M metaverse that people don't have interest in spending most of their day with a uh, VR on in a virtual world. Yeah. Uh, also, I mean, you did have this hilarious and damning piece about the metaverse before facebook metaversa uh, with uh, Andreessen talking about reality privilege
2: right uh, what's reality privilege so uh, you know it's funny i actually think i kind of ended up with egg on my face off that piece for the reason that Andreessen shifted so quick that by the time it came out i was criticizing him for something that i don't think he thinks anymore. <laughs> but so reality privilege was this concept he jokingly maybe jokingly Actually, I don't think so I, I think genuinely I think he genuinely was expounding, which is like certain people with enough money, enough social capital, enough a high enough position in this hierarchy of a crazed society that we live in have privileged realities and their realities are really good. And you can travel to Italy and stay in a villa and you can have sex with beautiful people and you can do all kinds of cool, fun stuff in reality. You can have a farm, you can grow and touch stuff. But most people on a planet of 15 billion people in 2050 are going to have really shitty realities. So like, You know, it's a quote, reality privileged position to be like the metaverse is bad because Mm -hmm. what we actually have to do is build a really awesome metaverse for all the bug people to live in so that their lives aren't just absolute hellscape, (sighs) depraved, sad things. Right. And I don't know because he wouldn't talk to me for the piece, but I think that by the time it came out, it like that piece dropped in the American Conservative right as he started tweeting about the Canadian truckers. And it was like kind of the signal Um, that it was the bat signal that he was throwing off that he was like, actually I'm on the side against the technocratic elite. And he tweeted out this huge reading list that he had made during the pandemic. And that he said had colored a change in his thinking. I mean, and I know privately like who he associates with and who he talks to and stuff. And like some of those people are pretty based, (laughs) (laughs) but like they're not all. And maybe I'm being too sympathetic, but I tend to think it was probably a positive shift. Mm -hmm. But that's the thing is I think probably if you ask him right now, are you the technocratic overlords going to design a metaverse to capture twelve out of the fifteen billion people on Earth to like give them like a planned future? My guess is probably he wouldn't be that into that now.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I I wanna get a bit more conspiratorial, a bit more op pilled here, and I kinda wanna start by asking your take on something very recent that I want your take on the Paul Pelosi assault because the discourse in its wake disturbed me in a way that I hadn't viscerally responded to something online in the way that I did to this, because immediately I saw this seemingly ubiquitous adoption by the right on Twitter and parlor mm-hmm. and where, you know, in general on social media of the absurd story that the assault resulted from. Paul Pelosi, an 82-year-old man having a lover's quarrel with his straight grinder date, who happened to have had a psychotic break three days earlier and follows QAnon, which they proved by the coded language he used on his surreptitious 911 call, and due to the Utterly stupid idea that when you break a window, the shattered glass only goes one direction rather than right. everywhere. But anyways, new Twitter owner Elon Musk actually replied to Hillary Clinton with <laughs> with this theory from some like random blog spot that immediately crashed. And yeah. that made me like actually furious because there's no way Elon Musk could possibly believe that story. And like, I understand the suspicion many of the right have towards the media. I mean, someone killed Jeffrey Epstein, but um, I, I felt something very much like hate towards people who out of like pure weakness of character arbitrarily and obstinately just fabricate a reality and hold it up with the conviction of truth. And the intensity of that like hate-like feeling I had scares me because I was like, oh yeah, this is the feeling that makes civil war possible right? Because I was essentially just like dehumanizing these people for what I saw as just like a really weak, pathetic and knowing upholding of like a utter fabrication, but with all the conviction of a truth. And then, Mm -hmm. but then, you know, what made it really conspiratorial and like put me into like total like op headspace was the fact that Musk made this seemingly accelerationist attempt to Instigate a further destruction of any semblance of ground truth we have left on the huge social media platform he just bought. And I want to know do you think there actually is a reason technocrats like Musk would want to push this total decay of any semblance of a common truth that's left in this country? Yeah, I mean, do you think there's ulterior motives? Uh, What do we (laughs) do about this? I guess what's just now a habit. To just like literally make up your own reality, which feels really scary to me because it was also the first time where I felt I was just like, oh, like people who do this, like I have like no sympathy. Like it's just so weird. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways,
2: I think they're sensing their power. They've got the wind at their backs. I think they're sensing that the midterms are going to look really good for them. I think they're sensing that like with Musk taking over Twitter, like I had a similar reaction to you. I was like, oh, wow. It made me think like a lot about how close I'm willing to be to some people on the distant right? Like where I think they're going to end up in the future in a place that I think is going to be really scary because like for Let's say the last 10 years, their fundamental argument has been one about principle. Like, you don't apply the principles of free speech evenly. You apply them to people on the left, they can say whatever they want, but then when we say stuff, it's hate speech and blah, blah, blah. This is unfair. You're using the levers of state power, like in ways that you're like investigating the Trump administration over stuff that you wouldn't investigate Obama. It's a violation of principle. If you didn't do this stuff, we would be normal. You're driving us to be crazy. And now they're doing the same shit. And like, of course, a lot of the big time idiots like the right wing YouTubers have always done this. Right. They freak out about like little stuff and they never applied their principles either. They're just like weird political media monsters. But a lot of these other people were making this argument from principle all the time. So, what you were essentially asking people to do was have sympathy across the lines. Think about people who were beaten up during the riots of 2020. Think about that stuff, and then we would all be fine. Think about the fact that actually it was violent that a police station got burned. Don't just apply that to January 6th, the insurrection. Like, this was their argument always. But when this happened, they're like, oh, yeah, it was fake. It was fake. There's no, there's no like expression of sympathy. Like, Marjorie Taylor Greene and all these people like laughing about it and you're like no man like your whole argument is blown up right here Mm. and so i found that really sick you know if you are a person who believes in somehow repairing the american experiment somehow keeping this ship going you've got to really look at where the principal application is happening or whether it's happening at all there's a great book called The Impending Crisis by David M. Potter about America before the Civil War, and it's the exact same process. It's the exact same process where people stopped applying principles across the lines of their enemies. John Brown was not a terrorist to the abolitionists, right? And he was a terrorist to the Southerners. And so like to this day, because of the legacy of that, the fact that John Brown, who you know, to some degree I'm a fan of or whatever, certainly grew up a fan of, but John Brown is a man who murdered innocent families in their homes. And like, nobody cared if you were a Northerner and you were on that side, because you're like, he's on my team. And I think we're seeing that process play out now. Like, I don't know how you tone that back down. And that's the source of my like big black pill about the future of America is I'm to some degree privy to conversations in the liberal center where people get what the fucking issue is. Like, you could run this system cooler. The stuff that is making people insane is like, they're disempowered by an overheated economy, we pumped too much fake money into the system, we're way in debt, nature's collapsing, like all this stuff. All of that basically has to do with the fact that we don't have controls over capital in this country. Mm-hmm. You could run down, we've been running at 12% corporate profits for like 12 years. And like, there's a great Warren Buffett thing from 1990, where he says, a society that runs at 6% corporate profits for more than a couple years is headed towards civil breakdown. Because it's too unfair in the divisions that that creates, <laughs> and we've been running at twelve. Like we have to tone that down. The problem is when people on the right say we're going to tone it down, and they talk about like worker power, right? Like at NatCon, there were the National Conservatives in Conference, there were workshops on worker power, and it's really interesting to hear people on the left respond to that because they immediately go, "Fuck, that's Nazi shit." And you're like, but you have workshops and worker power. Like like, Like, what? And then from the right, you know, there's a thing happening. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, Chris Murphy, senator from Connecticut, are making vocal, real steps to say, hey, we have to tone down the globalization thing. We have to bring down that 12%. We have to run this system a little cooler. Ro Khanna said in The New Yorker last week, we have to make it okay to root for the home team, i.e. we have to have a national vision that looks almost a little like, you know, he's talking about industrial policy. He's talking about revitalizing like a vision of American patriotism. And so it's, it's almost like it's almost you sound like J.D. Vance to some degree, right? <laughs> but then when Ro Khanna says that stuff, J.D. goes, you're doing a woke technocratic takeover of evil America. Fuck you. And you're like, what? Like Biden is out here talking about industrial policy and you're calling him the most dangerous president in the history of the world. That's not an application of your own principles. And it's going both ways. And so this is a long way of saying that's the source of my black pill, that I think people do understand the steps we would need to take to put this train back on the tracks. And I think they're just not willing to do it. They just hate the other side more than they want to fix the system.
1: Is that in part because they want that hero identity in part is it like a kind of like because is it the meaning? only
0: is it the only viral vehicle that will right. get the message out or is it just yeah. that one study where people were willing to lose money to punish their opponent mm-hmm. and then what's the technocrats play like what's elon's yeah. play yeah. like that's the i don't still quite don't well understand. i think
2: he's like purely reactive mm-hmm. like he does things against his own financial and political interests just to fucking <laughs> own the lip. Right. I mean, I don't think it's that complicated. I don't think he's a very complicated individual. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. I think the more complicated individuals like a Blake Masters, like a Peter Thiel to some degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, I actually don't really know about Thiel, but like with Blake, he's got really, really complicated ideas and really, really sort of like in private, generous expressions about like how it would help a lot of people to like do the stuff that he thinks he's going to do and how he wants to work across the aisle and blah, blah, blah. But like his organizing thing is still the progressive left is the enemy of humanity and stuff like he'll just like go out and say that in public mm-hmm. and you're like, well, how's that setting you up to get into the Senate and work on industrial policy? It's not you don't care, you know, and I think the, the thing that you could do again to like save the system and like the thing that Musk might do to save the system unintentionally is just like drive people away from Twitter. Yeah. Like if it just if Twitter gets super super bad and it falls apart, like we actually might save America. That that would actually be really (laughs) He was actually playing four D chess. He bought it to ruin it. Like (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I almost kind of hope that's true. Yeah. I I almost kind of hope that he did that on purpose. Like maybe maybe I'm underselling him. Maybe he actually is just trying to ruin it. I think that would (laughs) be awesome. I don't think it's true, but (laughs) one
0: thing we talk about a lot and have been paying a lot of attention to is the fragmentation of social media spaces, though, and mm-hmm. people sort of exiting to communities into quote unquote dark forests. I mean, mm-hmm. would you see it as a positive thing if everyone left Twitter and instead joined a million Discords groups of uh, 300 people, yeah. you know, 400 people? Do you think there's actually a better path to recovery from there than from everyone being thrown into these giant gladiatorial arenas of discourse?
2: The problem is that the nature of online as it is right now is where it's like attention flows non-linearly towards okay. like a few polls and even like, okay, so I have 10,000 Twitter followers, right? But like in the long tail of Twitter, like even I like represent a poll of some degree versus like a Barry Weiss who has 500,000 or something like, and like, there's no fucking way those people are going to give that up. They're not, mm. as long as Twitter exists, they're never going to, Barry Weiss is never going to go. Like, be a member of a Reddit community because what she's <laughs> using Twitter for is not to get information. She's using Twitter to like exhibit a profile to the world.
1: Right.
2: And to some degree, I am too. Like, I wasn't on Twitter until my book came out a few years ago and I got on and I felt like shit, man. I didn't, cause I didn't really know anything about Twitter. And then I was just like this guy who'd been doing successful magazine work for a long time with 300 Twitter followers. And it, like, all of a sudden, I felt like the biggest loser on earth because I'm just over here with your grandma with 300 Twitter followers. Like, no. Blue check, nothing. And I will be honest, there's nothing more I wanted because I could see what it offered. Like, I could see all the people who were like, oh, yeah, I have 25,000 Twitter followers. So now I can just quit my job and do a Substack, stack and I'm fucking chilling. I was so jealous of that that even my brain, my skeptical brain about all this stuff, like it kind of warped it. And like people who are real in it and don't even see that process at work within them and stuff, like they're never gonna get that shit up. It has yeah, to be. Has they're to gonna
1: be. pay for their blue check mark. <laughs>
2: yeah i know (laughs) that i mean that's the funniest thing of all twitter right now like if we were to open it it would be 50 percent blue checks being like i don't care about my blue check it's like yeah you (laughs) do (laughs) yeah (laughs) you do that's why you're only tweeting about it you're not tweeting about yemen you're not tweeting about (laughs) fucking real issues in the world you're tweeting about blue checks
1: you know it's interesting though like Following the Ukraine war, it's been way more useful just to like build a really good Twitter list. And a lot of those yeah. people don't necessarily have blue check marks. Maybe that means that I've been seduced by lots of disinformation, but I think more, it's just like things work slightly differently in that part of the world. Well, it um, gets worse and, with yeah. scale,
0: always, it's too. Deb- so right. You can find bubbles that haven't reached the scale where it yeah, goes.
1: Which made me think like if the physics of Twitter were slightly different, it could still be a really useful tool. This is a good maybe closing question. Since you're reporting about this area outside of the center liberal column, in your opinion, do you think there's a more than 50% chance that America could find itself in an actual civil war before the end of the century? And I know this is a hyperbolic question, but if so, what does that look like in really broad strokes, like materially and demographically speaking? Uh
2: I think the chance is much closer to 100% than 50%. Wow. There are paths out of it. One is literally like Democrats get absolutely wiped out. Republicans do a lot of like really crazy, like weird anti-woke stuff and like QAnon batshit craziness. And then Democrats (laughs) come back on a platform of like, hey, we're going to do capital controls and stuff like that. There, there is actually a, just a simple electoral path. It's a two step path that involves them getting wiped out, having a reckoning, coming back. There's also a path that we have an external enemy and it produces some kind of like Charles de Gaulle figure who like kind of blows up the system. He's like a Charles de Gaulle, Huey Long, like breaks a lot of rules. The soft Curtis Yarvin take. Right. That, that's a path to so
0: World World War Three instead of a civil war. basically.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you like China invades Taiwan and then sh- missiles start hitting L.A. And then like somebody comes out around and fixes it. And then it's like, I am the nation. I saved the nation. Now we do this other nation stuff together because like otherwise mm, we're all going right. to die. Like the Charles de Gaulle move. That could work. I don't see who that figure is right now. But mm-hmm. all right. Leaving that aside in terms of the war. I think most smart people have come around to, like, a pretty accurate vision of this. Like, this isn't just me saying this. I think what it looks like is the troubles in Northern Ireland. It's a sectarian, intercommunal, weird, like, you have a lot of trouble figuring out, is the Paul Pelosi attack part of the war? Like, mm-hmm. is, is that, is that mm-hmm. political? Is it mental illness? You don't know. It's a shadow kind of weird thing. Mm-hmm. And, like, to some degree, we're already in it. To some degree, we're already in that phase. It's like weird, hard to place political violence, sectarianism. Where I've been living for most of the last year, like, people get punched in bars over politics. It's dangerous to be a Democratic poll worker in certain places. The militia is in charge of the county, the militia is elected, they've won an election. But the people who are in charge of the board of supervisors in Shasta County are essentially proxies in the militia. So is that like war? Mm. Like, because there's like a degree to which that happened because they're harmed. And then like at a certain point, I think it's probably pretty likely that in like places like where I've been living, you know, there might be pogroms against Berkeley liberals who bought all the houses because like nobody can live up there. It's way expensive. And like, you're going to have people just like taking shit over. That's probably going to happen. I don't think that either side at this point is organized enough to have a kind of armies marching against each other kind of thing. But you also will have and to some degree already are having like an internal war within the security services. Right. Mm -hmm. Like our internal security apparatus is intensely political. And right now it's largely controlled by like. The kind of neoliberal center, whatever you want to call it. It's not the Dems. It's not the Republicans. Mm -hmm. It's guys like Michael Hayden, right? But Michael Hayden tweeted recently. He retweeted a quote that said, American Republicans today are the most dangerous and nihilistic ideology that this guy who he was retweeting had ever encountered anywhere in the world. And Michael Hayden, former CIA director, member of the Atlantic Council, like a card carrying member of the blob, he retweeted that and said, I agree. And I was the CIA director. So that guy, if the CIA director thinks that Republicans in Montana are as dangerous as Al-Qaeda, what's the next step? You're going to use the levers of the state against them. Right. That's, that's going to happen. Right. And it is already happening. And I think that that's going to be really dangerous. When the Mar-a-Lago raid happened, somebody attacked the FBI field office in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. So that, is that war? Because to right. some degree, that yeah. is, right. that's right. political right. violence against the state. That's happening. And it it was happening in response to actions by the security services. Hmm. So, like, you know, if you extrapolate this at the pace of 10 years, if we keep going in the direction that we're going, it's not will we have a civil war. It's like what will the civil war that we already have look like, blown out at the rate of that time. And that's why I think it's an inevitability. We're not. Even in a position of averting something that might happen, we're in a position of trying to corral something that is already happening.
1: Yeah, totally. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, there you go. Civil War or World War Three. Take your pick. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well, at least we know generally what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, do you, what do you want to plug? Anything?
2: Uh, I wish that I had a plug right now. I'm selling a book this week about that region, Northern California, and so wish me luck. Hope that I get a lot of money so I can actually keep living this life.
1: Please, yeah, I yeah. No like money twenty
2: yeah. clones of you too. Yeah, as seriously, well to right?
1: And also in Europe. <laughs> I
2: hope. the Vanity Fair piece. I mean, knock wood, you never want to assume yeah. that a magazine piece works, but that that yeah. should be out. I think February issue, which sounds like a long time for now, but really isn't. And other than that. I have a lot of old pieces at Harper's, The Baffler, stuff like that. Fantastic. Check them out. They're good magazines. We'll
1: link to some. Well, James, thank you so much for spending this time with us and chatting with us and catching us up to speed on the good U.S. of A. Actually making me feel kind of okay about our 40% tax rate here right now because uh, it's (laughs) a little bit calmer. Coming out with us in Berlin and we'll fill you in on what we know, but awesome talking to you. Hope we can do it again. We'll
2: see if
0: Exit to Europe still holds after (laughs) this winter. Yeah, exactly. We're going
1: to stay on.
2: Anyway, cool. I would love to hang out IRL and yeah, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate
1: it. Totally. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah.
0: Ciao. Thank you for listening to the New Models podcast, and thank you, James Pogue, for coming on the show. For more, you can check out his site jameshensonpogue.com. He's also the author of the 2018 book Chosen Country: A Rebellion in the West, an embedded report on America's contemporary militia movement. Back in New Models Land, Leth has been busy wiring the Discord with some new IRL features. This includes a special guest list for Berlin's Trauma Bar and Kino for our members. If you're on the Discord and can't see the IRL section, go to the Read First channel and opt in, or DM Lathe with any questions. Also heads up that Carly and I will be speaking next week as part of the Future of Criticism conference organized by Kolya Reichart and jointly produced by the Bundeskunsthallebahn and the Akademie der Kunst in Berlin. Our talk is next Friday afternoon in Bonn and is followed that evening by a panel that includes Joshua Citarella and Dina Yago. I'll be DJing that night alongside Eric D. Clark, and that's just the first day. Further conference speakers include Matt Dryhurst in conversation with journalist Nicholas Mock and artist Hito Styral, NM's Modifier aka Alex Scrimger in convo with Kate Brown, Eflux's Julieta Aranda speaking with artist John Miller, Texas are Kunsts, Isabel Grau, Scholar Nikita Dewan, and many more. There might already be a New Models crew heading out to Bonn on the 18th, so check the IRL Berlin channel for more. That's all for now, but we'll be back next week with a very special guest offering some relief from our recent focus on civil war and evil. I'm Lil' Internet signing off. See you next episode.
2: This has been a New Models production music and mixing by low internet for more visit patreon.com slash new models or newmodels.substack.com